Let's think it through as we're, we're about to do our couple week series here on Christmas. And I'm going to be honest with you, I like don't like preaching during Christmas. And it's because I've done pretty much the same themes for like years. And it's like, how much more can you say about hope and peace? And I mean, that sounds terrible. Okay. <laughs> a lot, I'm sure, a lot. And you can come up with a fresh way of looking at it every year. But every year when I start to think about it and work on it, it's like, yeah, you know, I said that two years ago. Or, yeah, you know, that's, it's kind of a, an idea that has been out there. It's like, you know, it's like, what, what do we, there's got to be something here and I'm mining. And this year I decided uh, that the part of the Christmas story that we ignore was the part I really wanted to focus in on. And I don't think I've ever heard anyone do four weeks on the genealogy of Jesus. Uh, so that's what we're doing this year. And we're, we have taken... Uh, the concept of preparing him room, and the idea that Advent is a time for us to prepare to receive Jesus. And I thought there's really no better way to talk about preparation than to look at who Jesus is and why it was important that he came the way that he came, and uh, to kind of focus in on some of the details of the genealogy. And I know it's the kind of the part of the story that you probably skipped over. And to be honest with you, it's like it's sort of like when if you became a Christian and you started reading the Bible and you started at Genesis and you started working your way through the Bible and Genesis was pretty great like it's it's you know upbeat and there's a lot going on there's a lot of action uh, you know there's some crazy stuff happening and you're kind of like asking questions and studying stuff and wondering what is this and what is that and how does this work and and then you get to like Exodus and it's still it's like a lot of action going on you know in Exodus and then you get to like Leviticus. And you hit like a hard wall in Leviticus, right? You're like, all of a sudden I'm stuck in the weeds here and I don't know how I got to this place, right? Or numbers, even Deuteronomy can be tough at times. So you like find yourself as you're reading through the Bible, like you hit this wall and you're kind of just like, ah, what's going on here? And I know a lot of people that have started reading the Bible and quit at Leviticus or quit at numbers or Deuteronomy or whatever. And by the way, I would never suggest that you read the Bible like that. If you're doing it for the first time, come talk to me and I'll give you a much better reading plan than, than, than that one. But um, I kind of feel like the genealogy feels like that sometimes. Like we don't actually know what it's really happening there. We get that it's got to be there. But if you were going to start a book, uh, the story of Jesus, why would you start it? I mean, I was thinking about like John, when he starts, you know, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and everything was made through the Word, and it was a light that came into a darkness. And you're like, okay, this guy's got my attention, right? Like, John, it starts with a bang, and you are like, it's poetry, and you're in, and you're like, this is unbelievable. You know, Mark, when he starts his, uh, it's like, you know, you, you're dropped right in the middle, and he's like, there was this crazy guy, John the Baptist, and he went and started baptizing people and just drops you right into the ministry. Like he starts at the part that's like awesome, right? And just, it's one of those movies that starts at the end and then works its way back, you know, gives you all the stuff, but it, like it starts you in the middle of the story. Um, you know, uh, Luke, Luke says, hey, I, I've decided to, to write up an account of this for my friend Theophilus. And so he starts with this very thoughtful kind of conversation with this person saying, hey, I'm going to make sure that you know this whole story because it's super duper duper important. Matthew just jumps right into a genealogy. It's like I was thinking about those movies that like grab our attention, right? There's something that they all have in common, you know, like um, I was watching The Lion King and just the, the sun comes up over the, over the plains and all the animals are there and the circle of life kicks off and everything is just sort of like working its way towards, you know, the 
the baby being, like, right? So, like, you know, there's, like, there's, and you're in. It doesn't matter what else happens in that movie. If you are, like, I guess this isn't a thing anymore, but if you were surfing through the channels and you catch that sun coming up over, you're, you're hooked, right? You're hooked. I was thinking about one of my favorite movies. Um, there's some movies I, I decided not to talk about in church, but this is a good one, Gladiator, right? Like, you guys are so judgmental. Gladiator's awesome, right? It's like, they, here they are, they're on the last battle in Germania to kill the hordes of, you know, whatever, and in the beginning, they're kind of setting the catapults, and they're kind of getting everything ready, and there's steam coming off because it's cold, and he's wearing the big fur kind of like cape, and, and he sits there with Quintus, his like right-hand man, and he, Quintus yells like, move those catapults, and he goes, the catapults are good, I think they're good, everything's good, and he goes, he's like, uh, what, what does he say? Quintus looks at him and says, um, you know, can't people just know when they're conquered? And Russell Crowe looks at Quintus and says, uh, sorry, Maximus Decimus Meridius looks at Quintus and says, would you know you were conquered, Quintus? Would I? Of course not, right? And then there's a battle, and you're like, this is running 100 miles an hour, and I'm in. Um, I was thinking about the movie Up. different way to get your attention, right? The first like four minutes of that movie is perfection and you have no heart in your soul, you no heart in your body if you're not weeping at the end of it, right? These two people meet, they fall in love, they, they you know, can't have children. One of them is sort of this like staunch sort of like, you know, uptight dude and the woman is this lively sort of all, you know, and then they are just growing old together and happy and then she dies and he's left alone. And at the end of that like four minute setup of Up, you are like, I don't care what else is happening in my life right now. I'm going to watch the rest of this and it doesn't matter, right? Like there are things that happen in the beginning of these movies on purpose to grab your attention and pull you in. And Matthew does not do any of this. He's like, and then so-and-so begat, so-and-so begat, so-and-so. And you, us, our generation, this time in history, we don't get this. Like the first generation Jewish person who reads this genealogy has their mind blown and it is an, a, an opening that for them grabs their full attention. And we don't always pick up on that. We don't always exactly understand how they were processing it when Matthew opens up his story of what happened in the life of Jesus by starting with what made Jesus who the Jews would have been looking for, right? He, he establishes a few things in this genealogy that put Jesus on the path to becoming the Messiah for the average Jewish reader who's uh, opening up this, this book. And in fact, they wouldn't have gone any further unless a few things were checked at the very beginning. Now, each one of those authors who wrote those Gospels all wrote them for different audiences, and I'm not going to bore you with all the details of who exactly everyone wrote them for, but Matthew writes for a Jewish audience. And he says, basically, the most important thing for me to establish at the very beginning of this story is that Jesus is who you're looking for. He is uh, the, the Messiah, right? He's in the, in, the, in the Greek, it's Christos. You know, I mean, Some people sometimes when they accept Jesus, they just get started in their faith. They think Jesus Christ is actually like Jesus' name, like his first name is Jesus, second name, last name Christ. That's a title. Christ is a title. Christos in the Greek and uh, in, in the Hebrew, it's a word that we get the word Messiah from. 
Right? So Messiah and Christ, those two words basically mean the same thing. They mean anointed one. Right? So they're, the, they're looking for this anointed one, but there are things that they would have to check off. Like if someone came to me next week and they were like, hey, I am Jesus, right? I would be like, okay, <laughs> you have mental health problems, but let's talk about it for a second. Where were you born? And if the answer is not Bethlehem, then we, it's a non-starter. And I would say, okay, what's your nationality? Are you, are you Jewish? Like, can you, can you trace your line back to, to David? Because that's what it would take for you to be the Messiah that the Jews were looking for. And Matthew is saying, but before we begin, let's just establish that Jesus is exactly who you are looking for. That he does come from David's line, he was born in Bethlehem, that he did have the lineage that you're looking for. And then he writes out this lineage and kind of establishes who Jesus is, but he puts so much into this that we just don't pick up on. And he establishes all kinds of things about Jesus in this, these 17 verses that the Jews would have had their mind blown and they would have been hanging on every word at the end of this. At the end of this. So let's read it. Let's read it together. And I apologize already for how I'm about to read this. Um, I did listen to this, and I did practice this, but it's not going to feel like I did, so just follow along with me here. We are in Matthew chapter 1, uh, starting with verse 17. Anybody know what the Pew Bible page number is? I love it. I call it a Pew Bible. There are no pews. 827. So if you're following along, you can go to 827. Um, we put them there to use them. If you ever want to take one home, if you need a Bible, just take it with you. Just we would love to see these disappear. We would love to see people take them and give them to other people and take them and have them at home. Whatever you want, take one. They're for you. All right, verse, verse 1 of chapter 1 uh, through verse 17. This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, son of David, son of Abraham. Right? That's how he starts. That's his bold opening, right? Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac, the father of Jacob. Jacob, father of Judah and his brothers. Judah, father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar, Perez, father of Hezron, Hezron, father of Ram, Ram, father of Aminadab, I always get that one, Aminadab, Aminadab, father of Nashon, Nashon, Salmon, not salmon, not the fish, Salmon, father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab, Boaz, father of Obed, whose Mother was Ruth, Obed, father of Jesse, Jesse, the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, Rehoboam, father of Abijah, Abijah, Asa, Asa, Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat, father of Joram, Joram, the father of Uzziah, Uzziah, the father of Jotham, Jotham, the father of Ahaz, Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, Manasseh, the father of Amon, Amon, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconia, whose brother at the time, and, and his brothers at the time of the exile in Babylon. After the exile to Babylon. We're just getting warmed up here. Here's where it gets hard. Jeconia, father of uh, Shiltiel. Shiltiel, father of Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel, father of Abahud. Abahud, the father of... I don't know if there's any pregnant women in the room. You're looking for good names. Uh, <laughs> just, I mean, any of these would be great. Uh, they're going to be easy to uh, pronounce, and people are, are going to really know them. Abahud, father of uh, Eliakim, Eliakim, Azor, Azor, Zadok, Zadok, father of Achim, father of Achim, Achim, father of Elahud, Elahud, father of Elazar, Elazi, uh, uh, I always get this one wrong, 
You got it. You can read it. Um, father of Matan, Matan, father of Jacob. Jacob was the father of Joseph, husband of Mary. Mary was the mother of Jesus, who is the Messiah. Thus were 14 generations from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile in Babylon, 14 from the exile to the Messiah. Let's pray. We're done. And you, you might read this, and it'd be like, you know, I could go back and look up these people, or, or I'm not really sure what's going on here, but you see that it's broken into sort of three sections. In the end, the last, the last verse tells us that there are 14 generations, in the first section, from Abraham to David, David to the exile, the exile to Jesus. There are 14 generations, 14 generations, 14 generations. And actually, a lot of people, when they look at this, they go, this this does not add up. This is one of the problems with the Bible. If you look at this, it's missing some names. There are some names left out of this uh, genealogy. By the way, the word genealogy in the Greek is just the word genesis, which means beginnings or, you know, sort of establishing where someone comes from. Um, and you would be right. There are people missing. Now, there's no one in here that wasn't part of Jesus' genealogy, but there are people that are missing from this genealogy so we have to start by asking the question, why did Matthew write it this way? And again, this is something that doesn't translate to who we are and at the time that we live in and the culture that we have. I mean, I was trying to think back in my own history, like how many generations back could I go where I actually know the people and know the names of the people? And I was like, I get like three, maybe four generations back, right? My parents might give me two or three more back. But like, that's it. I know maybe know three, four, five. And sometimes like when I was growing up, I know a lot of you guys have like a real like connection to your ethnicity. Uh, you know, you know, we were we were German or we were, you know, Irish or we were Haitian, right? Like whatever it is, like you have a connection to who you are and a certain people. I was like, I don't know, like my family's lived in Florida for five generations or something, and I'm not really sure where they're from. And we're not really sure. We got a relative who was adopted. We don't really know what the the you know connection was there, and so we're not really hundred percent. Sure, like I was always kind of like jealous of people who knew and had connection to who they were and kind of like had generations upon generations of information about, about their family and could look and say, hey, I come from this or this is, these are my people or whatever. That's what's going on here. And why does Matthew write it 14, 14, 14? And there's probably multiple reasons, but the, the thing that I thought was very interesting and sort of matter-of-factly stated by some theologians uh, was that each, each section is exactly 14 generations, and it's not exactly 14 generations in each section. So why did Matthew do that? Well, the name David, right, David, is, if you were going to break it down in Hebrew, so here's your Hebrew lesson of the day. Um, I'm sure some of you will be laughing at me later. Uh, David breaks down, there's no, there's no vowels, it's just DVD is essentially, Dalit Vav Dalit is the way that you would say the, the Hebrew letters, actually going the opposite way, but, and Jews, uh, actually almost all cultures had a connection between the numbers and the letters, right, so they could add up the, the value of someone's name. There's actually um, some pretty interesting archaeology where there's like kings from 5th century BC who like built a wall that was like the exact length of what his name added up to, so this is like kind of a thing that happened in the ancient times, and David, DVD, basically. D was uh, equaled the number four, V equaled the number six, and then D again equaled the number four. It adds up to how many? Yeah, right, 14, 14, 14. It seems like this genealogy is really about David. And then you kind of put the pieces together. What does verse 17 say? It says, 
From Abraham to David, 14 generations. From David to the exile, 14 generations. Right? These all, things are all 14 on purpose to kind of point towards, towards David. There's 15 kings listed. 14 kings are not called king. One king is called king, and it's King David. Right? There's something about this that screams out to the Jewish person that there's something very, very, very important about David, about the idea that the Messiah, that Christ, right, the, the anointed one, not... And in, in the Old Testament, there are plenty of people that the anointing lands on, and they are anointed one for a time, but not the anointed one. There was a difference between anointed and the anointed one. The anointed one they were waiting for to sit on the throne of David. And so when Matthew writes out this genealogy, and he says, hey, it's, it's the, day, first, the first section of this is establishing the reign and the, the sort of kingdom of David. The second section is watching the kingdom of David actually kind of fall apart and come to a place where it is, it is really hurting. Then exile, right, where they're taken away into Babylon and taken away multiple times into exile. And then it's going to be reestablished again with this Messiah who's going to establish David's throne forever. And I want to share with you a couple of verses here um, from the Old Testament. And sorry, David, you don't have this, so just let me read it. Um, by the way, if you're following along in the app, we have fill-ins. We have all these verses in there. You can follow along if you want. Second Samuel, this is God telling David what he's going to do with his throne. He says, the Lord declares to you, this is God speaking to David, right? That the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and, the, and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. And what a beautiful promise God makes David. And David, he understands this promise in a generation, right? In one generation, he sees, hey, I have a son named Solomon. Solomon comes and builds a temple, builds a house for God to preside in. David wanted more, nothing more than to build this temple to God. And God said to him, no, it's not you. It's going to be Solomon. And he brought Solomon along who fulfilled this promise that God made. But if you read this promise again, you realize that this is fulfilled multiple times. And in fact, many of the promises that God makes in the Old Testament are first and foremost for the people that he makes them to. We can't just read into a promise in the Old Testament and go, that one's for us, that one's for now, or that one's for the future. It, it immediately means something to the people that he makes a promise to, and then often means something again in the future as you follow what Jesus is doing over the history of the world, right? So it, it was fulfilled immediately in Solomon and then fulfilled again to create a kingdom that would reign forever. Solomon's kingdom does not reign forever. The temple that gets built does not last forever. In fact, Jesus comes onto the scene and only a few years after Jesus goes away, Rome destroys the temple brick by brick, basically removing the entire temple from the Temple Mount. Right now, you can go and see the Temple Mount, and there is a different building on it. Not the one Solomon built. Not the glory of Israel in their temple. It's been removed. And so what is this, what is this eternal throne that, is, that has been talked about here? What does David's eternal throne look like? That's the one Jesus was going to build. And so there's a temporary, uh, you know, we see the temporary 
We see it come true exactly in, in one generation and then it come true again in the person of Jesus. And I want you to make the connections here that the people of Israel were longing, longing for God to bring his Messiah. But at this point in history is also a really dark time for Israel. Right? Yes, they're under the occupation of Rome. Yes, things are difficult in their culture to, to be who they are and to just sort of be free to be the Jews that God has called them to be. But even beyond that, God has spent 400 years disconnected from them between the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament. We call this the intertestamental period. And there's like one page in your Bible, right, that goes from the last book of the Old Testament to the first book of the New Testament. And that page is 400 years. 400 years of nothing. No stories, no nothing. Right? The Maccabean Revolution happens in that section. Hanukkah gets established during that time. But that's it. There is nothing in our Bible that tells us about that 400-year period. People are longing. They are desperate. They are waiting. In fact, many people have even given up waiting for the Messiah. They say, you know what? God hasn't done anything in my generation and the generation before me and the generation before them, and he's not showing up, and he's not speaking to us, and he's not doing miracles anymore, and he doesn't seem to care about the plight that we're under, and he doesn't seem to want to get Rome's foot off of our neck and so I'm not waiting any longer on this Messiah. Like, I think sometimes we have trouble waiting on God for weeks, years. We have trouble waiting on God's promises for a short time. This was 400, multiple generations that God had basically been quiet, been silent, allowed things to get, you know, the... It gets darkest right before the dawn, right? That was the time that they found themselves in. Yes, that's a Batman reference, sorry. They found themselves in that time waiting for Jesus. And I want you to understand that Matthew's starting this off by saying, here's the eternal throne that God was going to establish. Jesus is the one that's going to sit on it. And this means that you can have hope that God's promises are actually going to be fulfilled. It may not have happened exactly in the time frame that you wanted it to happen, but he will always fulfill the promises that he makes. And that makes Jesus the hope of the world. Jesus, the hope of the world. We're still celebrating the idea that Jesus is the hope of the world. That if you find yourself in situations that are beyond your control or beyond what you can handle, that Jesus can handle those things and Jesus can control those things. That he is the hope of the world and he is also the hope for us as we prepare and wait on God. Another, uh, another connection point to Jesus in the Old Testament. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. David, you don't have this one either, buddy. Um, this famous verse that we talk about just about every Christmas. For unto us a child is born, for unto us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. There's that eternal government that we're talking about. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. And so if Jesus is the hope of the world, I also want you to understand that Jesus is God's plan. He is plan A. There is no other backup. There is no other thought given to any other plan that it was always about Jesus. The fulfillment of all of this was always going to be through Jesus. 
that there, yes, there was an element. And even in this time, you can go back and look, and there was a, this, this prophecy was actually probably more likely about a king who was local and a son that was born to him. And they would have understood it through those eyes. And now we look at it and we say, well, this is obviously about Jesus, right? Because it was fulfilled again in the person of Christ. But Jesus has always been plan A and always been the hope that we are looking for. But the time frame is what we, I think, struggle with. Is God on time? Is he bringing him about in the right amount of time? And for us, the right amount of time is like so small in comparison to what God sees and how he's moving things during, uh, with a, a view on all of time. And I love how the writer of Galatians puts this. He says, when the time set had fully come to pass, God sent his son born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law. When the time set had fully come to pass. And I just want to encourage you that if you find yourself in a period of waiting, waiting for God to fulfill a promise that he has made, waiting for him to, to uh, you know, intervene in a situation that you have found yourself pouring out to him over and over and over. You're not the first person to be in that situation. And what it looks like to wait on God sometimes is patience that's beyond what we think we can handle. But that Jesus has come into the situation now and offered us his presence during those times when we wait. The difference between the 400 years of not having Jesus during that time and not having God be active and having that silent period to kind of establish this, this time where Jesus would come into this very dark time, the difference between now and then is that we have the Holy Spirit and we have Jesus in our lives. That while we wait, we wait with God and we wait for his time to be right. And I want you to know God is always right on time. So I want to just paint a picture for you. Because, you know, we focus on Jesus coming into the world during Christmas as a baby, as a, you know, as a vulnerable child. But it doesn't end there. It goes through Jesus' entire life and then risen from the dead and then ascends to heaven. And then there's a new throne and a new kingdom coming. So I want to finish just by reading you Revelations uh, chapter 21. And this is just a picture of what it looks like to live in this kingdom and to have this hope for eternity. And I don't often read to you Revelation, but this picture of the kingdom is so beautiful. And this is what the people of that day were longing for. And this is what the people of our day are longing for. Maybe this is what you are longing for. Revelations 21, verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, and the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. There was no longer any sea. I saw a holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling is now among his people, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them and be their God. And he will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. So the one seated on the throne is the one who made all things new at the end 
You know, and I, I think for us to have that perspective and know that there's hope while we wait and hope when we don't have an answer and hope when we're not sure what, where things are going to go because we know where things will eventually go. We know Jesus is establishing a new kingdom and there's a throne that he will sit on. And it's, it's interesting that like as we look at prophecy, we see that it's fulfilled in the temporary and fulfilled in the eternal, right? But I also think some of these promises, they're, they're fulfilled in like large ways and small ways. Like there's a throne in your life that you invite Jesus to sit on, to be in control and to create the kingdom in your life before you find your way into the new kingdom that Jesus will create and the, to be near the new throne that he will sit on. And the, the, the beauty of Advent, of, of receiving Jesus again and going through the, the process of preparing ourselves to receive him again figuratively every single year is the idea that we get to dethrone whatever is on our throne personally and allow Jesus to take his place again as the Lord of our life. This is what, what was happening live for the Jews when he came and Matthew wrote this entire story down so people would have it, is that he was literally dethroning the things that were sitting on the throne for the Jews. And he was welcoming in new people into this kingdom that he was creating and asking them to put him on the throne and to say, I am the one you've been looking for. I am the Messiah that was talked about in the Old Testament. I am the Christ who was talked about here in the New Testament. The anointed one that God has sent to be your king. And you can be part of my kingdom. Next week, we're going to talk through some of the other people that get involved here in this genealogy that almost should disqualify Jesus from being received by his people and what that means to us as we think about our own lives and how we relate to God as well. Would you, would you pray with me as I close our time here? Jesus, would you just identify, help us identify the things, the people, the, the habits that sit on our throne. And would you help us to remove those things and prepare a place for you to be the Lord of our lives, the King of our lives. God, would you create your kingdom in us and through us in the world around us. God, we preach and show the world hope in the idea that we trust that your promises will be fulfilled and that you are with us even when we struggle and even when things are difficult. And we thank you that you have not left us alone. You have given us your presence. And we're not in an intertestamental period of, of, of quietness where you're not involved. You are involved. Your spirit is in us. Your presence is with us. Would you help us to slow down, to stop, to think about what we're doing during this holiday season and to think about receiving you first and foremost, that that would be the most important thing to us as we process what Christmas means. We thank you that we have your word, that we can search your word and learn so much from it. God, would you let it change the way that we see ourselves and the way that we live, the way that we treat people around us. In Jesus' name, amen.